we're back. Welcome to Abstractable. I'm Lockie and with me is Ryan. So this podcast is a podcast for the entrepreneurial spirited amongst us, for people who are curious and hungry to learn new things. And in it, we distill the ideas from the world's best thinkers in business, startups, psychology and other areas um, and just have a cool chat about it. So today we talked about the YouTube series, How to Start a Startup from Stanford University, which was also kind of run by the people from Y Combinator. And in today's episode, there's some pretty big heavy hitters coming in. So we've got Sam Altman from president uh, of Y Combinator, which is a, you know, one of the biggest uh, accelerators in the world. We've got Paul Graham, who was the founder of Y Combinator and ViaWeb. Peter Thiel, who started PayPal, uh, Palantir Tech, Founders Fund, and was the first external investor in Facebook. Uh, Mark Andreessen uh, is co-founder of Netscape and investor in Facebook, Foursquare, GitHub, Pinterest, Twitter, Airbnb, etc. So what do we cover? We talk about where ideas uh, for startups come from and how they often start out quite strange. We talk about how to create a delightful product. And we discuss why you should do things that don't scale early in a startup. So why? Uh, to learn about one of the most interesting types of business that has become popular uh, since the rise of the internet. And because you may want to start a startup one day. So you can obviously check out more by looking up the series on YouTube, uh, How to Start a Startup. You just find it on Stanford's uh, Stanford site. There, it's the 2014 edition, and obviously all of these, uh, all the people in the lectures, you can also find out more about them as you wish. Don't forget, you can also find full videos from our episodes on YouTube, and also show notes uh, and other books we mention on our website abstractable.co. So, if you enjoy the episode, uh, it'd be really mean a lot to us if you shared it with someone else that may enjoy it too. Cheers. And we're back. Welcome, Lockie. G'day, mate. How you going? Marvellous. Going really well. We're, um, we're, we're coming into some cooler weather and there's going to be a point here where we cross over uh, very soon. Uh, and don't, you, yes. don't, you, don't, you, don't you also love that I, um, I brought up weather yet again? Yeah, it's the most exciting thing to hear about on a podcast. So let's move quickly. Uh so I wanted to talk to you about a chef's table episode I recently saw by recently last night about a guy called Francis Mulman. Are you familiar with this fella? I am very familiar with that fella. I think I've, I think whilst we're on the uh, the topic of the podcast and books, you know, what we talk about on this podcast, I think I've got a couple of his books. Cookbooks? Yeah, recipe books. Right, right. Mm. That would be very cool. So that basically this guy, he's Argentinian and he grew up in Patagonia and now has this house in the middle of absolutely nowhere uh, and he it takes like you have to drive for, you know, days and then take an hour-long boat trip out to this house on, and he owns this little island in Patagonia and he cooks almost exclusively now with fire, with fire, like fire pits and different types of fire. Uh, though he was a very um, famous, I suppose, and still is very famous, but he was a very famous um, fine cuisine chef, French chef. But the reason that this guy's life struck me is there's just something about this guy that's just so unique. 
Yeah, he's a he's a free dude, isn't he? He's he's just totally in his craft and totally just living this. I call it a free existence, if you will, because he's as you said, he's living in the middle of nowhere somewhere in Argentina. I think he's got a couple of different places, but um, in the middle of nowhere, in in the heart of Argentina's wilderness, and he just gets these people coming out to visit him and he has big banquets that he puts on and you know different bits of meat and vegetables and whatever that because this this is something you saw on chef's table yeah yeah um did you see the bit where they had like the you know the gross detail but there's basically just a big hanging like carcass sitting there and it's like it's on a, on a couple almost. of yeah, splayed out on a couple of sticks, and it just sits there in this smoke uh, all day. It was incredible. Yeah, I think the thing why what's so interesting about him is he's a fantastic storyteller. Obviously, he's got a way with words that just draw you in. But I feel like that he's. I was thinking about this, and I've kind of come to this conclusion that. He seems like the type of person who's become more and more himself over his life. So, like, it sounds like from his bio that he was this very ambitious young guy, travelled overseas to France, went to Paris and learnt how to cook, uh, came back and was impersonating French chefs basically and he'd wear this fancy white hat he kept talking about and do all the kind of uh, pompous stuff and had quite a famous restaurant and was a good chef but he was an imitator and then I think that that he was using that story to kind of tell about his own life as well that he was trying to imitate others and then slowly over the his time he's now kind of gone back to his roots and is very much very comfortable in who he is but also expresses himself as as himself and now he kind of wears all these wonderful clothes and lives this very free lifestyle where, which, you know, is not for me but he he flies around the world. He doesn't stay in one place very long. And um, There's something about that kind of evolution to constantly try and be embody yourself more or something. Yeah, he seems he does seem very wholesome. Like he seems very comfortable in his yeah in what he's doing. Uh, yeah. So I just wanted to bring it up early because I'd love everyone to check that out. Um, that episode on Netflix it's it's a really good one. You could say you could say, mate, that he's um, he's really found his fit, uh, if Ugh. if you will. Is that no. a good segue? Is that a good one? Very good. It's good. Yeah. It's a little forced, I'm not going to yeah, lie, okay. but I like it. contrived. Yeah, but that's all good. So what are we talking about today in the in that kind of space, mate? We are talking, this is, now this will be a part one because I think we'll do a subsequent part two at some stage. We cu- we're covering the first 10 lectures uh, in a lecture series by Stanford University, uh, which anyone can go and have a look at on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's called How to Start a Startup. And this lecture series is the one from 2014 because I think they've released one or two other full lecture series from subsequent years. But this one really sparked my interest initially, particularly because it's just some of the big names that 
you know, that are on the, show, on the lecture series that are giving some of these lectures. Essentially, like, I, I don't think there were many that weren't, you know, weren't anything lower than billionaires on, on some, some of the offerings there. So some of the highlights, so basically, yeah, this is about, as the title says, there's 20 lectures and it goes through how to start a startup. Um, and some of the people that talk, I mean, I'll give you a couple of heavy hitters. Uh, so first of all, Sam Altman is the current president of Y Combinator. And and so that's probably worth saying is that these, almost all these people are associated with the famous accelerator um, or incubator Y Combinator, which was founded by Paul Graham. So Sam is now the president of what they call YC, Y Combinator, and he was once upon a time a Stanford dropout and uh, he created at the age of 19 a, a, a company called Looped, which sold for a cool uh, 45 million bucks approximately. And then now he's more involved in these kind of accelerator programs and really switched on interesting guy to listen to. Um, there's he's Paul quite, Graham. He's quite young. Yeah, he's quite yeah. Young. yeah, very young um, and quite nerdy, which yeah. doesn't surprise you, but not the greatest. He's not Barack Obama in the way he orates, but uh, he's uh, he's got a, have a lot of wisdom in what he says, I think, so. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't make his money off his off his speeches, but is what you said. No, no, no. Paul Graham. So he is an interesting speaker. Actually, I quite enjoyed his quirky style. Um, so he was a really, really early tech entrepreneur, and he was, uh, you know, really influential in creating a programming language called Lisp, and he created a company called ViaWeb, which sold to Yahoo. But he founded Y Combinator and he was really a leading thinker on how what startups are and how to start them and how to kind of scale them too. So he created this kind of accelerator and he's done a lot of writing. There's, he's got a fantastic blog where you can read a lot of his ideas on startups and, and this lecture is fantastic. Uh, yeah. Have you checked some of those out? Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've read a few of his articles. Like they're great articles and he, I think he read like – they're pretty regular on the release, like every month or every couple of weeks even. Um, I don't think he started Lisp, but he's like, he's probably the biggest advocate of Lisp in the world. And so I've actually read read one of his books called um, Painters, Hackers and and Painters and Hackers. Yeah. yeah, Painters and Hackers. And he basically tells the journey. It, it, it Really, it's a collection of some of these essays that he's written on, on his blog. And it's incredible. It's it's pretty centered towards software development. So some of the essays are pretty deep in the weeds of programming and stuff, but there's some really good stuff that overlaps with, you know, art and broader concepts of business and startups and different things. So um, definitely a worthwhile read. Yeah. But he's, his, his startup Veerweb, I think sold for like $400 million, something of that Jesus. nature. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Peter Thiel. Now, this lecture... So who's, lecture who's five, this guy? <laughs> this is by far the standout lecture in the in the series and we probably actually won't talk about it too much here because we are going to do a full episode on his book, Zero to One. But he was co-founder of PayPal um, and then uh, went on to work on Palantir and and has got the Founders Fund, which he, he found. It's his, uh, I guess, venture capital 
style firm, um, but he's the author of this fantastic book, Zero to One, and he's another leading thinker on startups and he's an he's an absolute, I suppose, contrarian is the best way to describe him. Yeah, he's, uh, he's it, the epitome of a contrarian. He really gets you thinking. Uh, and, you know, he was the first outside investor in Facebook too, which is just like a litany of one of his litany of, you know, highlights of his career. So one I of think, the sharpest I think it, brains I think, in this space, uh, uh, you know, like, yeah. For sure. He's, um, he's the, um, I think it's in the social network, the, the movie about Facebook. Um, and I think that was the, the meeting that they were going into or that they went into uh, as, you know, when, when the company really got going. So it was like the first investment and you get to see, it's not actually Peter Thiel, but it's a, a lookalike of Peter Thiel in that I need that to rewatch that movie. I remember thinking it was such a good movie at the time. Yeah. I watched it. Get you pu- it gets so. you pumped up. It definitely gets you pumped up about starting a startup, mate. <laughs> uh, and then others, uh, I mean, Mark Andreessen talks more as a venture capitalist um, in the ninth episode, but he's the partner in probably one of the most v- famous VC firms, Andreessen Horowitz, with uh, I think it's Ben Horowitz who wrote an excellent book that I will be rereading soon and want to do on this podcast called, I think uh, the title is The Hard Thing About Hard Things, something yeah, along those it. lines. Really good book, really good book, really interesting. And he takes you through his story starting up in a pretty intense startup story that he went through in the uh, in the 90s. Um, so, but Mark Andreessen was co-founder of Netscape, one of the fir- first browsers. Um but he's invested in so many other companies, you know, Facebook, Foursquare, GitHub, Pinterest, Twitter, Airbnb. He was involved in all those um, at the venture capital space. And so he kind of talks through how how to add that venture capital investment starts, which go hand in hand with, with, with the startup world. So I won't go through the whole list. We might talk about a few others as we go along, but... There's a lot of cool speakers in this series and they kind of just lay out um, their thoughts and their philosophies on how to start a startup. Yeah, really exciting lecture series. I'm I'm glad I wasn't in that room when I was at uni, for example. Like I'm glad this isn't a course I took because I, I wouldn't have been focused enough for, to get the value out of this back then, right? I don't know about you, and I don't know about the people in the room. They're probably they're probably a lot more motivated um, if they're in some sort of entrepreneurship course, I guess. Yeah, maybe, maybe if you not. get into standard, you're actually a good student, unlike us. <laughs> so. Exactly. We're just making up for all the reading we didn't do back then. Mm. Yeah, that's it. I didn't really get that interested in learning until, you know, I wasn't forced to do it. I think I that's reckon. it. I think that's where the curiosity sparks in you. Or maybe you start learning things that you're actually interested in learning. Maybe mm. that also helps. Yeah, it's not just thrust upon you. And mm. then you have to, yeah, anyway. So talk to me about, I guess, startups. What is a startup? Yeah. So the the definite definition that comes of what a startup is off the back of all these lectures, it's not it's not a um, a few million dollar 
revenue company or you know even even probably even the tens of millions of dollars uh, probably doesn't cut it these guys are really talking the companies that you know attract valuations in the hundreds of millions or billion plus i I think is is very much what this whole lecture series is framed around and so um i guess the traditional idea of startups is that they're generally technology focused and they're 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 really lean they move really fast and they're they're um they're doing something which hasn't been done in the way which it's been done delivered at the price or you know <laughs> or the free or completely free to some degree um in a lot of cases uh, maybe that maybe the simplest definition is extreme high growth company yeah extreme high growth i think they have to have a technology element in order to have that leverage to achieve that and yeah, well, can you explain that. that a bit further why why does it have to be a technology company and what do you mean by the leverage that that gives mm. i'm going to draw on Naval here actually so Naval Ravikant is a I'm I'm interested because he actually wasn't in the in the lecture series it would have been interesting to actually hear from him in in the lecture series come to think of it but he, he talks about probably it. interviewing the same Taleb somewhere else <laughs> yeah true uh so he actually talks about three different types of leverage um which I think we talk about in episode six or something but mm. basically there's the first type of leverage being uh, the leverage that we've had probably for the the longest time, which is labor. So this is having many people working for you, essentially. And this goes all the way back to, you know, how did we build the pyramids? Well, we had 6,000 slaves build the pyramids. And so that's effectively, the Pharaoh had a lot of leverage. Doesn't, mm. you know, it doesn't make it great in terms of... Um, <laughs> No, uh, a lot of suffering. <laughs> yeah, a lot of suffering and all the uh, um, all the pain that goes with it. Uh, but that's effectively leverage, and and that still continues today. You know, a company has employees; the employees are, are the labour leverage for that company. Uh, then you move up the chain to equity, and so you know, if you can buy things, if you can buy better things, if you can buy bigger things, if you can buy the best people. Uh, then you you're increasing the leverage of what you're able to do, um, and it also comes into the to, into play with things like economies of scale. You know, so the bigger the bigger things get, the arguably the more efficient they get at producing the the value that they produce. And then the third type is technology, um, and this is in increasing order of by the way of leverage. And so it's almost like you have labor down here is providing like this tier one level of leverage um capital provides you maybe 10 times that and then technology Mm -hmm. provides you a thousand plus times that in terms of the leverage possibility that it gives you and the reason for that is marginal cost of replication and so essentially to produce the same value over and over again it it doesn't cost anything additional or yeah it's marginal in terms of how much additional it costs and so that's why yeah. technology is always associated with startups. Yeah, that's a great explanation because I guess that you're right that you the only thing that can get you replicating that quickly is technology. Yeah. Actually, and there's one other thing that, that we spoke about painters and hackers um, before 
the the other big thing that Paul Graham actually brings up about that is um, they're also the the really good startups are solving a, a challenging problem. Like mm. they are they are doing in you know innovative things with tech, like actual innovative things, not not buzzword innovative, um, and and that means that there's not big companies just can't keep up with them because big companies mm. can't keep, can't move that fast. They can't keep up iterating and innovating on on this technology as as, as fast as. Um, uh, as the little guys. Yeah, as fast as the little guys. He actually gives an anal- a great analogy in the book of a of um, a fat guy chasing you down the stairs is is when you're dealing with something in. Um, and I'm just imagining like a big tower here, you know, like a circular tower. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I almost think it's like might, might even be a Simpsons scene or something that I've seen something like <laughs> this on, right? And so. Uh, if, if you're competing in something that's not technologically challenge, challenging, you know, the fat guy will eventually catch up to you. He may, you know, he may be falling down as he's ca- caught up to you, but he will eventually catch up to you. But if you start running up the stairs, then it gets harder and harder and harder for him to, or them to, to follow you up that, up that tower. Mm, that's um, an interesting idea. Yeah. So find something challenging in technology, you know, just make a billion dollars and then you've got yourself a startup. Cool. Yeah, done. Episode over. So so I want to start with a bit of a disclaimer here. So in uh, the episode around uh, Fooled by Randomness, we were introduced <laughs> to Taleb's idea of dentists versus stockbrokers and the different environments that they play in. So that you can basically judge someone as if a dentist has been in business for five years, you know they've it's mainly because of their skill. But if a stockbroker is, there's a much larger possibility that if they're a star, it's luck. Which environment are these guys playing in? Are they stockbrokers or are they dentists? I think they're out on the floor, mate. They are they are out on the uh, out in the Nasdaq playing around. Yeah, for sure. So I think that these these guys that we're watching, they're we're looking at the winners, you know, and there's some mix of skill and luck that's happened to these people that you need to be a little bit wary of advice sometimes or just have your little bit of a, you know, bullshit detector on because um, they can be telling you, uh, the how they guessed the last twelve numbers on the roulette wheel. So um, yeah, it's a it's a gam- There's a big gamble that, that goes into this, and and you never hear of the or you rarely hear of the losers, unless mm-hmm. the losers is like the loser happens to you know go out in a big a big fiery mess and take a lot of other things with it. You know. So there's there's an interesting kind of non. Uh, non-intuitive point that comes out of this that you know basically that these people are doing they need to display some level of skill you know and you've got a formula below in classic programmer style that can kind of work this out but you have to show some 
level of skill to be in the game, you know. You're not just going to luck. You need a lot of luck if you're a really bad business person to do this. But beyond that, it's a bit like being an actor, you know. Beyond that, you need a heap of luck to be the one in a million. And then there's obviously the Peter Thiel's, Daniel Day-Lewis's who are just just always going to win because they're just so good. But for most, there's a lot of luck involved. So but the interesting part of that is that, okay, if you need to show a certain amount of skill and use a certain amount of techniques and tips that these people give you here, um, you actually can take a lot of lessons from the losers too in some ways. Yeah. Because they may have done all the right things. Yeah, they may have done all the right things and just been unlucky. They're more likely to be unlucky. So you can take more from the loser here than the dentist that got fired for malpractice (laughs) rats. Well, I I suspect, you know, the way to prove that pretty quickly, mate, is I suspect the person... The you know the first time founder is a has a lot lower chance of possibility of success than the second time and then the third time and then the fourth time and so mm-hmm. on. Yeah, I'd hope by the time you you know you're you're attempting after nine failed attempts at starting a startup, your tenth, you know, I'm hoping you're in your best position by then. Um, either that or you just haven't learnt uh, maybe enough. That's probably got enough to say. You're starting to. Some of your poor behaviours are starting to shine through perhaps. So perhaps. one one thing I really liked in the first episode is they talked about what does it mean to you to start a startup? Um, the first thing they said, be prepared to spend five to ten years of your life doing it. Yeah. There's a, there's a real whimsical idea, you know, that comes up with, with the idea of starting a startup. <clears throat> or even a business. Like even if you just take out like I I have this issue where I think of an idea and I'm like, great, let's start this thing, not realising how much effort's actually going to be <laughs> you're going to have to put in to do it. Um, it's a great framework, isn't it? Yeah. I, there's this, yeah, they say they, yeah, you know, it's essentially it's like yeah, five to ten years uh, is 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 the minimum that you'll be serving, and but mm. but hopefully like it's even longer than that. Ideally, mm. it's even longer than that because it's something that you want to continue to do. Uh, but but it, it what it doesn't what isn't factored in is you know after after you finish your sitting of the social network and you're all pumped up about how great it's going to be to start the new Facebook. Um, is is the fact that you need to be in that for years and years and years and years and years before you're even going to maybe get any traction. Because mm. as we also mentioned just before, is the the chances of actually gaining traction is is quite low. I think these VCs that we mentioned earlier, they invest in two hundred companies just so that one of them will win. You know, that's right. So. And it's interesting how all the guys who have made money in startups don't do startups anymore. They invest in startups because they know the the odds are heavily against them. Um, and so to start a startup means five to ten years of pretty hard slog, um, a very high chance of failure. Um, much more of these businesses fail than normal what they call mom and dad businesses, 
Um, is that a twang on your voice then, Lockie? It was. Yeah, it's oh, my attempted an accent. And it continues. It's good. Yeah, I, think, it does. I, I, hope, I hope you're going to continue this for the whole episode. I'll pepper it through. Uh, but I think what it probably does guarantee you is to learn a hell of a lot. <laughs> you know, it is a going to be a, a real baptism of fire and you're going to come out the other end having a lot of skills. Yeah, there's no, there's no better way to learn than a trial by fire, eh? Yeah, so one of the co-founders of Facebook is in this series as well, Dustin Moskowitz, and he kind of touches on what it's like, well, do you actually need to start a startup or if you like the idea of being in a startup company, what about joining one? What's he kind of touch on there? Yeah, Um this is this is really important, right? So, I don't know what the percentages are, right? But we mentioned say that say that these VCs are investing in one startup. Oh, sorry, two hundred startups, just so that one, you know, one will be the the star child in that bunch. You know, and then that they're the ones that they've invested in. What about the thousands that they haven't invested in because they aren't up to it? So. Essentially, you can be in, you know, the thousands, the potential of thousands of companies, um, you know, or you can go to and and you know, you you end up probably if you if you're going to make one of these big big companies, let's just focus on what their definition of startup is. You'll need investment at some point in time down the track because they demand it just because of that speed of growth that, that the that big startup requires and. Um, if you're a founder, you might have, I don't know, 30%, 40% or of the equity left, um, or less, you know, depending on, depending on how many founders you have and then how many investors you take on board, it's going to be gradually diluted over time. Um, plus employees. And so this brings mm-hmm. to the next point is, well, if you have a 1% stake because you're the 10th employee or the 15th or 20th employee in one of these startups, even half a percent stake in that company, and that company becomes valued at $500 million or a billion dollars, and then eventually sells maybe, or doesn't sell and you sell your share in the company, um, that's not bad, mate. That's not a that's not a bad bit of skin in the game, particularly if it's a company that you you know you love their mission, you love what they're doing, and it's more likely to be yeah a successful company already, kind of you know, than something you've dreamt up if it's already kind of taking on people at a certain point, I suppose. Um, a lot of people also say that they can want to start a startup to ch- you know change the world or impact, have a big impact, but. You can have a very big impact joining someone else's business as it's on the rise and getting in reasonably early um, as it grows. Um, you don't have to start it yourself, you know. Uh, so if you're employee 15 at Facebook instead of employee one in your startup, now this, that's an extreme unfair comparison, but let's just take it to its its conclusion, you're going to have a huge impact on billions of people um, in that in that uh, 
in that position than perhaps something you could have done yourself, which has a probably less chance of success if it's already, you know, going from zero. If we're talking about going from zero to one, if Facebook's already at 0.5 and you're joining it, then one is going to, when it gets to one, it will be huge. Mm. Yeah. But it's, it's something that you don't quite think about or, or as much, or it doesn't seem to get think, you know, spoken about or thought about much is, is just the opportunity that exists to join one of these great companies. And there's, there's startups in everything like in every mm. single sector or known possible business, there's, there is, there is a startup. You're guaranteed to find a startup there. Um, and especially in the, because, because of the, some of the needs that the startup requires from like a, an energy perspective, you know, how much energy investment it needs. Um, you quite often will find more altruistic uh, or potentially altruistic companies um, that you'll be able to find and go to, you know, so if, if social, social engineering isn't your thing or social media wasn't your thing for Facebook, then you might join SpaceX if you're into other sorts of engineering, you know, mm. he's actually, he's actually quite a, uh, an older operator of startups, um, old, old Musk. It's quite interesting. Yeah, he's a he's an outlier. Of he outliers, is definitely an outlier. Talking about people who went again, he's definitely done that. So, perhaps one of the core tenets that I kind of picked up from this throughout this lecture series is they seem to talk about creating startup as two different. F- I would almost break them down into two distinct phases. I'm not sure whether they say this, but that you've got this first phase where you you're doing things that are actually kind of counterintuitive that it's like you do things that what they say, do things that don't scale. So the, you know, I had a kind of so a what misconception. Does that mean, yeah. Yeah. So I had a misconception that at the start of a startup, everything's just about building out your technology so that it gets ready to take off like that one of Musk's sweet rockets. But actually the start is about intense iteration and doing things, as they say, doing things that don't scale. So doing almost the opposite. So maybe if we take Airbnb for an example, if you take that on the face of it, that's a hard idea to make work. It's essentially then. It sounds like a really, like people frame this up as it, because there were some of the investors back then, they said it was a shit idea. Or it seemed yeah. like a really shit idea because yeah. now now it just seems like every other thing, and that that shows you just how much they've changed culture and and changed the perception of of things. But to just have a random come to your house and sleep in your house was a pretty like pretty niche idea. You know, yeah, back when like, Airbnb was kicking yeah, off. you used to hear about couch surfing and stuff. It's like mainstreaming couch surfing. You know, it's it's weird. Um, let alone the logistical issues involved, are huge. And so what they did at the start was they kind of did and um, their very few customers they actually had, they would go around and um, do all the photography for the apartment so they could talk to everyone. They would be 
going out and seeing customers constantly. They moved, I think they moved to New York to be as close as possible to the people that were actually using it. And they didn't really think too much about how they were going to build it out from there. They just knew that it was going to be on the internet. It's an internet platform. And then they just went and spent as much time close to the product as possible and doing things and not thinking about the five-year plan but just thinking about how can I get this so good that people just can't help but spread the idea because it doesn't matter how much leverage you've got if no one actually likes it and if you're forcing people to use it or when they use it once they stop using it, then you're dead in the water. It doesn't matter how much of this technological leverage you have. Yeah, it's it's like you can build you can build the best technology platform in the world, but if it doesn't do anything for people, they're not going to. There's going to be no you know there's no value provided or no real value provided. Um, then you've missed the point. Mm. And so the 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 non-scaled bit, which means that. You're, you know, you're answering all the phone calls. You're, you're doing the runarounds in the car if needed. You know, there, there was a couple of examples. I think there was one of the, the food delivery examples. Uh, I can't recall the company name. Um, uh, DoorDash. DoorDash, yeah. And I'm not sure what they're doing now, actually. DoorDash. They're still around. Yeah. Yeah. They're in yeah. Australia now. I'm pretty sure. So. Yeah. So essentially, like an Uber Eats competitor. Um, yeah. And so these guys were doing the deliveries. They were picking up the phone calls from the customers calling and there was, you know, it was a group of three or four or five of them or maybe less that were doing all this stuff. And then what that meant was they were going to the front door. They were seeing what the customers, you know, how they accepted the food and, and it was even sometimes an opportunity for them to ask questions to the customer. So really this is this doing things that don't scale is an opportunity to find you know, the acclaimed product founder market fit or product yep. market fit as it originally was and then founder gets thrown in there as well. <laughs> so and then so if you can like change and adapt as quickly as possible to find the perfect recipe and then you start reproducing that thing. Uh, that was that was really really interesting and really cool insight and it was nice to see how much they focused on the actual strength of your idea i think that yeah. gets lost when people talk about startups or the is that, that the ones that really make it have something that people love even though it's very difficult to tell what that might be at the very start yeah the um <laughs> There's there's a there's a lot of there's a, there's a bit of irony actually in in some of this too. So um, Paul Paul Graham, I think, actually speaks to ideas in particular in in one of the lectures, and he talks about this this idea of the the irony or the controversial nature of of an idea, and. If the idea sounds that good, like if it sounds just so, so good, then the chances are there's a lot of people working on it. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time. Someone's and already so, done it. 
or yeah, doing it. Yeah, someone's already done it, or one of the big the big giants is is well and truly on its way to 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 tackling it. You know, um, but so it's more about the ideas that actually sound kind of bad at the time. So we mentioned Airbnb just before, like that. That's a that's a very strange idea. You know, having people come into your house to back you know back ten years ago plus whenever it was uh that was that was a far more yeah niche focused thing and even even you as the the customer going into someone's out someone else's house like from both perspectives it was a a bit of a strange concept uh you know like google it was just another search engine but it just but they they tweaked um the algorithm for for it you know, for how things were ranked based on relevancy and, and how many links you have on a particular website um, or other people's websites linking to yours, and which I think that was literally all the first algorithm was, was how many other links on other people's websites and, mm. um, and how many times has your link been clicked. And that just revolutionized everything in terms of search engines. So... Uh, but at the t- and and now we look at that as being a farce. It's like, of course, that makes sense. But that's hindsight bias because at the time, I actually think I think it was um, Ron Conway, who was one of the early investors in the in Google. He invested very very early. Like this is in the nineties. He invested. Um, so you can imagine how he's going now. I imagine <laughs> quite well. Yeah. Uh, he he remembers at the time that it, it just seemed like such a strange idea and most investors were just like, what the, what is this, you know? Whereas he was like, he was so fascinated by it that he, he jumped on board. It's got a lot of black swan about this, you know, like, um, you know, these, these hindsight seems very obvious why that was such a great idea, but at the time uh, it doesn't seem that way, so. It's like um, it's like great art, mate. You know, like you hear people talk about, oh, I could have put a square on a on a canvas and a bit of color behind. Now, you know, in, in that really kind of abstract art, or you know, you might see some of the some of the Picasso. I'm just thinking Picasso because we we saw some of his stuff recently, and you you see him draw some things that look like something a a, a preschooler would draw. You know, effectively, you know. Um, which was actually kind of the mission that he was on to some degree, trying to trying to get back to his his inner, inner child. And the thing is, yes, it seems you know it, it does seem like that right now. But the fact is, you didn't do that, or you know exactly. So, so at the time, it was incredibly but, innovative or incredibly right for that time. It seems that that art is super contextual to the time. It cannot be, un- particularly art. It seems to be so much about the zeitgeist and the and the place at the at the at the time. So it's almost useless walking around an art gallery without the little head thing. I've found for me anyway, because I don't get it otherwise. Like it doesn't make sense unless you understand why this was. It's like a it's a it's a mark of innovation on on the on the time that it happened. 
Um, Absolutely, mate. And, and there's so many, so many factors that come into play. Like one of the big ones is technology. So the, the, the kind of general movements that really, really interest me is that inflection point where photography started becoming more of a, you know, a, an available mm. technology. Well, and we so, started, I think we chatted about this in one of the episodes, didn't we? Because it's oh. like a, um, about, I guess, the idea of then it was not so much about documenting, right? Mm, correct, yeah. So it's like we no longer need to paint realism as much. You know, we don't need to focus on how precise to real life can we get this thing to look because now we kind of click a button and yeah although back then there was a little bit of little bit of fire and excitement that went with it but uh now that we now that we can do this through another means it kind of sparked this big shift in people starting to break the curves and actually do things that are a little bit looser or had a little bit of flair to them and this is where you start to see the rise of all the things like the expressionists and the impressionists and all this and and that eventually finds its way developing into the even more abstract ideas um in art you know so it's like hmm. yeah i think something like maybe the reason that it's hard to understand for me is that when i look at something like a picasso or something like that it's not new it's something that's been around for a long time and it's kind of you've you've seen this idea you know this idea is in the world it's widely seen as as an active genius but when i look at it i i'm not seeing it in the time where it was something wild you know mm-hmm. it was like a you know it was like something that someone hadn't ever thought of almost you know yeah correct it's a and new is, way is, of it, it would have it would spark something that you're just like oh my god you know yeah it's but and this is why it makes it i don't i don't even know like it's extremely subjective you know without a doubt because you could go into a contemporary exhibit these days like look at something that's that was made this year Right, or last year, and you know, might get you can, might get a blend of things that with using video and using other mediums. And to us, we're just like, what? Well, what is this? You know, like it just it just it's almost like you can't do this to some degree, or you can't you can't do things in this particular way. And, but that's the stuff that back then was very much in the same the same bracket. Many artists would look at, and they were just like looked at in a way that. You know, Van Gogh, I think we maybe, – maybe Van Gogh is what we mentioned last time, but he never got to see any of the fruits of his labour for his entire life. It wasn't until after his life that his, all of his art start, started getting picked up and taken with the movement um, that, that was when the times caught up with it. It's that kind of idea from – episode 21 or whatever where I might have got that number wrong but the creative curve where it some things are too far outside of our reach a little bit like as as the general populace maybe in some stuff you need to be so far in the art world that you get it and some stuff's just rubbish and I think that that's kind of the 
you need to be able to kind of reach it. Like for me, I get the Banksy stuff, you know, or the the repetition that's kind of a like a, a court of the street art where they go and and Space Invader puts the same thing everywhere. That's got a little mm, bit of a mm. callback to the pop art kind of stuff that was so crazy in the sixties. So. I can grab that, you know. I get that. That that it's that does something to me. Like, but if I go in there and see someone, some of the stuff that you talked about, it's not. It doesn't kind of do anything for me. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really, it's really, um, yeah, it's it's fascinating how. But how exactly how subjective it is, and the it, without a doubt, there's probably been equivalent. Um, this this is coming from a place that because really I've got no idea, but I'm sure there's been plenty of art that's been lost just because the innovators, you know, the people that pick it up and introduce it to the to the next in line in the in the the trend curve, they just didn't pick up this particular art or they didn't see it as looking to what they thought was innovative at the time. Maybe it was too innovative for them. I don't know, you know. Yeah, the, the creative curve idea is quite a good one and it marries in well with this other book that I read called How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley, which we've talked about on, on an experimental version of this podcast of our own that we'll release. And that just adds this beautiful idea of how things take off, you know, and it's very relevant to this startup idea where there's ideas coming in the world all the time, there's new technologies, there's newer, new different people and it's all combinatorics, you know. This technology comes in, you plug what it was into that word? this. Combinatorics, is that a word? I've got no idea, right? But if, if it isn't, let's, that's, a, that's, a great, that's a great word. Well done. Well, I... I said it with confidence, but unfortunately yeah, you, you just, called it me just up. rolled off the tongue. I was like, I've never heard that word in my life. Yeah, it is. Combinatorics. Okay. It's like where you, it's how things fit together. So, okay. you know, imagine there's all these pieces floating around like gas in the air and they're all bumping into each other and this kind of thing. And all of a sudden this structure gets made and these certain atoms get together at just the right time where, you know, the sun's shining, whatever. It, so it's like. The right thing combining at the right time is is so important. It can't just be the right combination of things at the wrong time. It needs to be all these things aligning and that will take off. So it's not that there's someone who's like a particular genius in something necessarily in the same way that these startups, someone probably had the idea of, well, there, there were like lots of ideas about social networks then the technology came along that made it possible and it was at and it just at the right time and the person who was the fittest in that environment took it to fruition, you know. And ran with it. What happened to and MySpace? That, <laughs> I don't know. It died. I don't yeah. understand well enough <laughs> but, um, what exactly happened in that situation. But this, this kind of idea, right, like of... And that's what they're trying to do and say is that you want to try and make sure you're optimising for this type of combinatorics and fitting everything together and then boom, you're off. 
there's 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 something very entrepreneurial about the artist you know and may, maybe sorry maybe it's the other way around maybe there's something very artistic or artistry about the entrepreneur in the sense that they are they are investing in their ideas and they, they it's mm. a creative pursuit mm. very much and it takes guts to be different right and by mm. the very definition to create a business and be an entrepreneur, you have to believe something that someone else does and, and be willing to get out there and get it done. Yeah. And that is something that art is does so well, right? Yeah, correct, correct. And and the advantage that the artist has to some or yeah, it's not even really an advantage, but they have the possibility of putting that work out into the world, right? So you know, they can put their their product, they can put their craft out into the world, you know, because it's a, it might be a canvas or it might be something. Whereas for the entrepreneurs trying to start a startup, you know, the definition of this startup, you need a lot of money to get that going, you know, once, you, once you're getting into the growth phase. And to get a lot of money, you need to have a lot of customers. And if your idea is just, too out there, too innovative for this point point in time, um, then you're probably going to miss the mark. If it's too innovative for right now, but but is going to come into into vogue or come into you know relevance in one, two, three, four, five years time, that's awesome. You know, like you've you've hit really hit the nail on the on the head there because you've got your time to really delve into the market, find out who the customers are. And get ahead of all the kind of second movers that that jump on board. So this is that's really cool. So I'd be interested to if you take us through the key points and that that Marion from Paul Graham there so well to that kind of discussion around. Yeah, what well, are well, the, the bit, good ideas? What are the good ideas? Well, we mentioned we mentioned about that often. The now this is this is again talking from a startup perspective. Um, and I think there's relevance that ties across to other businesses, but I think it's kind of, I think it's maybe like dampened slightly. Like I don't think running a, you know, a more traditional, say small business, for example, uh, starting that business off the back of a bad, bad sounding idea is a great way to go. I think, (laughs) I think you're better off starting off a good idea. You know, it depends. It depends what mindset you have. Of course, you're better than starting off a good idea. If you have a fixed mindset and you're not, f- one of the best things about the start of when you start a business is you're completely flexible. It's the mm. most flexible time in your existence, you know. So if you approach it with this kind of hypothesis, pr- scientific mindset of, I've got this hypothesis, which is my plan, and I'm going to find out if the plan works. And if not, I'll do the next experiment. That is relevant to every business, I believe. Too many businesses start with a fixed idea and are just too headstrong on that idea and take it to failure. Yes. That's that's totally it, mate. And that's and that's very much not actually finding that product market fit because you're you're pushing a product that doesn't actually have a market or you haven't found your market for it because you're too convicted to that idea and it's because of an assumption or because of the fi- you know more too much of a fixed perspective on things um, 
or you just simply can't find who that market is. You know, maybe maybe it's someone on the other side of the world that there's that there's a market for what you're doing. So um, that can work though. You can have a really plan executed, and it just happens. You know, yeah. But it's I think it's so. not as common. Like it's 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 riskier than it seems. Uh, that's probably what I'm trying to say there. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I think where that comes from, mate, is I don't think the people that are doing though that that plan. Um, let's not generalize here. I was going to say they're not the younger, the younger people. They'd, they'd be more older people who've been in, they've been in this niche specialization for such a long time and they're creating a product to that specialized kind of industry. And they go, I know this is what we're missing. And the reason that they've started getting into that is because it's a problem that they've had day to day for the last 10, 20 years. That they're just like, someone needs to fix this. And then they feel so compelled to fix it that they go out and do it. Yeah. But you and can, that, people do that in like low barrier to entry, but or medium barrier to entry, I might call it businesses like cafes. You know, a lot of people start cafes and put a lot of money into a fit out before they've sold one cup of coffee and know yeah. if it works. That's where you start to have some serious graveyards. Yeah, well, here's, here comes the advantage of the startup again, right? Is you get to play with it at a non-scalable level. You then get to play with it at a to start at, at the initiation of where you're going to start scaling. You know, bits. You might pull bits off that you're deciding you're going to start scale. Like, and it doesn't. It, it's just costing you time. You don't have to outlay a hundred thousand dollars for a fit out of this this new premise that you're coming into and so there's the there's the kind of mismatch of, of of risk but but there is a there is a greater possibility that you will be able to sell coffee for a period of time in in going to that cafe than what you will in creating a successful income generating business off the back of that startup so it's like you know the security goes down and the risk goes up but the potential for a great outcome or, you know, for a, a big outcome also increases. So it's something to, yeah, definitely consider. Mm. So tell me about the good ideas. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't get just, there. Just, just, just pull it on, mate. So the, um, uh, we mentioned the bad products, but there's, and I, I've, I've already touched on this, this idea of that specialist who feels compelled to do it. And, this is recurring throughout the entire lecture series is um, you need to be, you can't not do it. You, you know, the world needs you to do it is, is the idea. And there's a reason for that is because the energy behind you needs to be just so strong to, to push through in building something like this. And, you know, if, if you haven't got the passion there, meaning you haven't got the energy there, it means that if you're put side by side with someone who's, who does have the passion, who's doing the exact same thing that you're doing, uh, they're going to get through when the, when the times are real low. And there's plenty of those times are real low situations or the challenges are too great to, to overcome. They'll see a way through. They'll find a way through. So I love this idea of things on the edge that he kind of talks of too. Yeah, yeah. Well, so... Th- and the, the sorry, the other thing you said before, mate, was the um, the thing about the 
the cafe or the thing about starting the the next social network after watching the social network you know, is that whimsical whimsical idea that oh i want to start a startup and then you're trying to just find an idea that fits what you think a startup is and that's also not a good way to find an idea mm. um it it needs to be very much about the idea and the idea seems like an idea that you must solve and then you can jump into it. And so where we were speaking about the specialist before, for example, you know, the person who's, who knows this, this craft or has seen this problem day to day, quite often these things start out as side projects. And because, because they, um, they're playing in an area that they understand the best, uh, because of their experience in it, they are able to bring something that someone else on the outside isn't able to bring into that. But there's a there's a few things, you know, a few uh, caveats that go into all that, which Paul Graham talks about, which is what you just said there about the, you know, the things on the edge are good ideas, um, and things on the edge come from both that specialized experience but also come from like a more like divergent thinking experience where where you're pulling together ideas from you know a compl- one field in engineering another field in art and another field in um hairdressing and just pulling all these different things together mm. to create what you think is a really great idea and so that idea itself would be sitting on the edge. Mm. What do you What do you take from from all that? Right? I think this. I think it comes back again to that kind of art idea: is that the edge cases seem to be you need to be immersed in the world to kind of figure them out, and then, but you also need to understand the mainstream to know where the edge is. So you need to fully understand and kind of master the the current wisdom or what have you or the what of whatever you're looking at and then to be on the edge of that you need to know where the middle is too to define an edge you know and that maybe that's a little abstract but it's sort of that idea of if you're in a you know you can get into that niche culture and know where the line is and know what's new and interesting and be first um, by having and see the luck before, have that kind of luck where you, you're the one that sees it before anyone else. Um, and, yeah, I think that you need to be inter- interested in an interesting problem, like he says, um, so that you're willing to tinker at it because you'll get there by tinkering. Correct, yeah. And it, because you need to be curious about what you're trying to solve. Because if you're not curious about what you're trying to solve, then, then as you said before, Lockie, you're going to stick to that plan. No, no, we're going back to the plan as opposed to like tinkering around in the thing that's really kind of tweaking your interest or, you know, you're going, why it's, is this yeah. happening? It was my, it's been my experience in business that I, was really passionate about an idea of creating a workplace for engineers that was really different um, to what I'd experienced in the past. 
and so are my business partners. And we almost had to figure it out afterwards why it worked. Because <laughs> we just tinkered at it, kind of made something that seemed to work, started to scale it up in our own way and much slower than what this is. Ours is a very traditional business. But then we had to figure out later why it worked so well. And once we did that, we could kind of make sure it stayed in that image as it grew. And I think that's a very similar invention story to almost everything in the world, you know. Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're really, yeah, really hitting on the, um, the doing first to some degree, you know. And it's an, and it's got a bit small and experimental. Yes. Low risk, low or risk. No, you know, not as scalable essentially yeah. at that point, at that point in time. Um, and then, and it's so fascinating how that just, <laughs> yeah, how that translates across. It's interesting. So it kind of takes us to that point is once you're building the product, and you've got a good idea. They talk about building a delightful product, which is kind of a nice saying, isn't it? Like, it's kind of fun. Yeah, don't ship crap. That's less fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, less less playful, but it's you know. But true. The, it's so true. Uh, the so the, the the idea, or sorry, it's like the passion first and the idea, and then once you've got that that bit nailed, then comes the product and focusing on the product itself. You know. Yes, there's all these other things that go into it, like you know, marketing and other things. But, but don't place all your time in what are my growth hacking strategies for this business, for this product. If your product shit, it needs there needs to be all the time spent in in investing in creating the most delightful, as you say, Lockie, product. I actually stole that from Twitch. Twitch have like a they have a hierarchy of what they call product you know releasing a product or releasing their product updates to the market um at the bottom is stable then above that is useful you know so like at the at the most fundamental level we get to stable then we become useful for for people then we become helpful for people and this and it's only once you get to the point of being helpful that you achieve product market fit so just because you provide some use to a customer doesn't mean that you're being helpful to that customer. You know what I mean? So mm. if there's a bit of functionality, doesn't mean that it's actually you've hit that stage of being helpful yet. Um, when you find that helpful, then you're you uh, as with any hierarchy, you need to have like the ideal state, <laughs> the thing that you're constantly striving for, and so that's delightful. Uh, and this is a thing that's unattainable. But you're continually striving to 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 fill your customers with delight, or fill your users with delight, or fill whoever it is that you're providing a product mm. to with delight. And I think that's really important way to frame up the journey of building the product. It's, it's like a it's like putting love into the product, really. Yeah, it's you know? it's such a nice word because it's like the to. It's not something you associate with a with hard technology. It's no, it's and quite cool like that. There's something that really came out for me from particularly the product focused lectures in this series and, and just a number of other companies that you know I've looked at is 
there's very much a personality in in the companies and also in the in the products that they put out and and you know you look at you look at one company side by side with another company and they have a completely different feel and if you put if you put a you know they speak in a different way they they look in a different way they um, they do things for you in a different way and it's all that feel that goes into it and it's and it's not you know so there's obviously the visuals and how things look you know if you're talking technology here right for example um, there's obviously the website and the kind of graphics you have, the colors and all that stuff, right? But then there's like deeper levels and it's the language you use. It's the, the, the way in which you, you talk about yourselves. Um, mm. It's the, the various interests that you have. Um, all these things go into, into, into making that. So, um, and all of that goes into building the personality for the product, and the other thing that goes into the personality of the product as well is uh, customer service because that's essentially the kind of person-to-person interactions that's happening. And so, uh, you know, if you've got rude customer service, your company is going to be, your product is going to be perceived as being rude no matter how yeah. flashy and great-looking everything else is. Yeah. And that's something a lot of tech companies get wrong, I reckon. You can't get any help, you know. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. If, and, and, and to be honest, mate, the ones that have the best customer service are seemingly the ones that do the best, um, mm. particularly, particularly at the start. We mentioned um, uh, the guys earlier, DoorDash, and they were, they were on the cold face every single day for, for a long period of time. Uh, the same, the same with Airbnb. They were going to their guests' houses all the time. Mm. Uh, I think Wufu uh, was one of the lectures in the in the series, and he spoke about how they were on the phone to them. They were writing Christmas cards to their customers. They wanted deep, meaningful relationships with the customers to understand it. And so he he likened the analogy that new users for like a new users is like a dating period. You know, for for you coming into you know, into a new product, you're just getting to know each other. You're getting to find out about each other's personalities and how you fit and and what you like, what you don't like. Um, but somewhere down the track, after you guys have been, you know, I don't want to say using each other, but using each other for a period of time. <laughs> Jeez, that's a good one. Uh, yeah. Eventually, we get to the stage of marriage, and so your existing users. It's like being in a marriage, and yes, you don't need to be, you don't need to be like going out on fancy dates every every single Friday night, but it's still good to go out on a fancy date once a month. A little bit of magic, once yeah, a little while. bit of magic. You got to keep it going. Yeah. You, you still got to keep talking to each other, and uh, so the, there's that really important thing about building the, the meaningful relationship with the customers. So, did you uh, have you? Going back to Twitch, have you ever heard the story of that business? <laughs> no, I haven't. But oh, okay, all I know about Twitch is they're like a they're like a video streaming service for gaming, which mm. started out as a thing called Justin TV. Yeah, and um, I think that's the crux of it. What I know. So oh, yeah. there's an Aussie. There's an Aussie founder. I'm sure there's an Aussie founder in there too. Yeah. Cool. So Justin TV 
I remember going onto this website to watch soccer games that I couldn't get on Foxtel. <laughs> but basically that started as an idea where it was like that one of the founders would just film themselves and live stream a guy called Justin. That's what it's called, justin.tv. It was just a live stream of his life where he... What? It was a live stream of his life where he'd have a camera filming everything he did 24 hours a day. It's so like you could log, without yeah, the camera like, crew. <laughs> yeah, you could log on and see Justin just hanging out or whatever. And uh, everyone hated it, basically. It was this terrible idea that had no value at all. And people would, had started like doing like that thing where they call the c- cops on him. You know, like, sorry, sorry. I can't remember what it's called. It's this horrible thing that people do, but now, but so someone came up with the idea hey, you know, we can see Justin online here. Um, we kind of, because of this live stream, we figured out where he lives from one of the shots or something. <laughs> Let's call the police to his house and just watch it. So all this weird stuff would happen. But anyway, they kind of figured out that during that period that people wanted to say, hey, how are you doing this streaming, you know? And um, so essentially they kind of set it up and changed it a bit so that people could put live streams up and that was the idea, right? Then the idea, that was like bad and it was, wasn't really people weren't staying around too long. Well, Joe, Joe Rogan started on Justin TV. <laughs> there you go. That's that's how old it is. Yeah. And then, but it had all these problems. It, it had no commercialization. It was c- committing all sorts of copyright fraud, you know, <laughs> hence why I was watching soccer on it. Yeah, um, great. It was free though, yeah? Yeah, it was free. Yeah, and then great. Then they realised that there was kind of this subgroup within it that people really loved that they were streaming games. Mm. So the people watching other people play video games. And so they made the decision to kind of change that and and pushed hard into into Twitch, which sold to Amazon for a billion bucks. And so this guy, Justin, said... He says he's got this uplifting message for people. If Justin TV can succeed, then nobody has an excuse. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> so this, it's just wild, you know. Like, but the, it's and this is the thing. I just I just check what the valuation is of Twitch. Five billion dollars. Insane. Yeah. And so yeah, that's crazy. So like, it's just a, it's just an interesting kind of milieu of stuff isn't it like but but this is the thing right is right now that seems like an awesome idea it's a great idea yeah you know and so it's it's very much comes it's just another classic case in point at the time it sounded like a bad idea but for whatever reason sparked the curiosity or i i don't know and then eventually there was a niche group that picked it up this video gaming industry which is now fucking huge by the way <laughs> It's freaking massive. It's only going to get bigger too, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Esports, mate. It's a, it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a thing. It's a thing. Um. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> and so, um, didn't mean to cut you off, mate. That's all right, mate. I'll I'll 
I'll I'll uh, I'll forgive you. So the um, I've completely lost my train of thought. No, that's all right. So uh, Twitch, it wasn't that good just, anyway. Let's just say, uh, last thing I'll say about Twitch is that there's an excellent how I built this episode that NPR thing where they interview him and he's just such a funny guy. So highly recommend giving that one a crack. There you go. Find find a bad idea is is the summary of that. <laughs> that uh, one's like just one of those outliers that's just too crazy to take many lessons from, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It aligns, but it's but it's I think it yeah, I think it is an outlier. There's a little bit too much outlying in it. Mm. Um, so the last thing I just wanted to mention there, mate, was that in building a delightful product, there's this real centeredness on growth and getting more customers in the door. You know, we increase customer sales by X, we'll be, we'll be here in, you know, by the end of next year type thing. Um, and these exorbitant growth targets you know, that's fine. But the thing that doesn't get as much consideration is reducing churn. So churn is what the term for, you know, customers that leave essentially, you know, or stop stop using what you're doing. And you end up with the same, you know, increasing your customers by 1% or decreasing churn by 1% ends up with the same thing. You know, mm. a 1%, 1% impact either way is still the same, the same thing. Although it's arguably um, reducing your churn by 1% is arguably even better because you're actually getting more, uh, more engrossed customers involved, more true fans, if you will, involved in, in your product. There's a sign of, of, a, uh, of it really sticking with certain people. Yeah. Uh, and so if you've, if you've got, you know, a thousand new customers coming in every single day, but you've got 900 leaving this, you know, a week later versus you've got, you know, one customer coming in or 10 customers coming in every day, you're going to be in a far better place. Um, you will be. And if time. you only, and if you have a hundred staying, you need to figure out in like in Twitch's case, why these hundred are staying around and probably focus more on that. Yeah. So, well, I reckon uh, might hit you up with the closing quote. Oh, I get the uh, get the honors today. Yeah, go for it, man. Okay, so this this is a this is a quote from Paul Graham. You need three things to create a successful startup. To start with, good people. To make something that customers actually want, and to spend as little money as possible. Shit, mate. That sounds easy. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, All mate. Right. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Bye.